Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden. I am the publications editor for the International Horn Society and your host. Picking up where we left off uh, with last month's episode of the podcast, we're going to continue with some more historical audio from a past horn symposium. This is the very first IHS uh, workshop, as it was called, in 1969 at Florida State University. Uh, This is a panel discussion with Philip Farkas, Barry Tuckwell, James Chambers, Anton Horner, Wendell Haas, and Max Patek. Um, the panel is presumably moderated by James Chambers. They took written questions and questions from the floor. Uh, some of the things they talk about include schools of playing, solo playing developments, transposition, intonation, difficult openings, um, and playing in band. So it's really quite a window into the history of the IHS. And I thought it was fitting with uh, the, the next IHS symposium coming up very soon in Montreal, Canada, that it might be fun to listen back to some uh, footage or some audio from the very first IHS workshop. Fred Young from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, asks the following question. Several times during this meeting, the artists have said the path to being a great French horn artist must be traveled under the guidance of a great artist teacher. Would the panel please list the principal horn players and teachers? In addition, it would be very interesting to construct a family tree of horn players. This tree uh, should extend back as far as Mr. Horner and Mr. Pate can remember to their youth. Let's take the second question first, because I know that uh, Mr. Pate and, and Mr. Horner both, I believe your teacher was Gumpai. Can you help Mr. Bird in this question? And both of you. Yes. The family tree. Yes. Can you hear? Mr. Horner, Mr. Horner, your teacher of the horn was Mr. Frederick Gumbert. Right. Frederick Gumbert was the solo horn player of the Gewandhaus Opera in Leipzig, Germany. And Mr. Horner studied with the solo horn, who the Gumbert was a very, very great artist, great man. And Mr. Horner studied with Mr. Gumbert. That was the beginning of the, uh, uh, the style of horn playing that we have today. Uh, Mr. Horner studied with Mr. Gumbert, and of course, Mr. Horner brought all of us in. I was one of his students, just like Mr. Chambers and others have followed, and we have, we go down the line, that's the way that, that, this is the schooling that we have. Now many of you have been in our class, and Mr. Horner, and you'll notice how he take your hand and change it, so what, this is the way he was taught, and that's how he teaches this, and you, you've got it now, that's the way it's going to go. When Mr. Homer left, I was accepted as another student of Mr. Gumbert. And the way he started teaching, I had to play the hand horn, first of all, in case if a valve shouldn't function, that you could help yourself with your hand. You remember that, Tony? And uh, as was my good fortune, Mr. Gumbert, was uh, retired 
the Gewandhaus Orchestra had six players and four played in the upper. At one time, we students were so enthusiastic, we gave a concert for the uh, faculty of the uh, Royal Conservatory. One act upper, a uh, symphony, and a horn group. My life's work and ambition. I had a double quartet, and Mr. Gumbert came to me after the concert. He says, Parak, he says, we are going to have a quartet. I'll play first. The two extra men from the upper play second and fourth, and you play third. And I had a most delightful time and enjoyment in Frenchon playing. That's where my quartet started for, and today I think we have 190. <coughs> Who was Mr. Gumpert's teacher? Do you know? That I don't know. Who was Mr. Gumpert's teacher? Would you know who was Mr. Gumpert's teacher? Who did Mr. Gumpert study with? Would you know? Do you know what the idea? Yes. No, no. Well, I suppose he developed as a great teacher and a great player. Through that he wrote some several books and teached the proper way, you know. And a straight tone, to, like we expect when you play Rienzi on hold that note. Yeah. And this is a question directed to Mr. Farkas and Mr. Tuckwell from Kenneth London from Hyattsville, Maryland. Could you please discuss and compare the position of the horn as a solo instrument today in the United States and England? And do you expect any increase in the appearance of the solo horn in this country in the near future? Mr. Tuckwell, would you like to take it? Well, um, I'm obviously not in a position to speak um, about big developments that I hope there are in the United States. In England, um, I walked into a tradition that was already there. Um, this had been created not only by Dennis Brain, but by his father, Aubrey Brain, who was a, a very great player, really great player and teacher. Um, he played on the funny little small ball French horn, but he played on it with the F crook, uh, except when he played the Brahms trio, when he played on the E flat crook is uh, a salutary lesson to us all, if you listen to the recording he made. So, there is more acceptance by the general public of wind instruments uh, as solo instruments. Um, this is not only because of Aubrey Brain, but other leading players from England. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Leon Goose, who's the oboe player, and Reginald Kell, the clarinet player. Um, they were very sort of spectacular players who um, created interest in wind instruments as solo instruments. So there is a, a big sort of uh, acceptance by the public of wind instruments playing solos. There's been, in the last few years, a big development in the recordings made of wind instruments as solo instruments. And this, of course, is immensely interesting. Um, I mentioned the other day 
one looks at the recording catalogue of even 10 years ago and compares it with um, the recording catalogue of today, um, I haven't actually worked this out, but I'm sure we would find that the difference is about tenfold in the number of solo horn records that are available today. Yes, well, I think... <laughs> Mr. Elliot from Marriott State University asks, we as horn players enjoy the challenge and mental exercise that is required by transposition. Are there any reasons other than tradition for continued use of untransposed parts? Is the variance of tone color associated with the various crooks of the hand horn still significant in today's horn playing? Let me repeat the last question. Is the variance of tonal color associated with the various crooks of the hand horn still significant in today's playing? Well, I, I won't try to answer the last part of that at the moment, but I just want to uh, touch on something that Mr. Tuckwell mentioned this, this morning. I think the most disconcerting thing that can happen to a player, particularly if he's had some years of experience, is to find these new edited parts of an orchestra piece on, on the music stand. I, I remember the last experience uh, for 30 years I've been playing the Brahms Second Symphony. The first movement is horn in D. Perfectly nice and easy to play. D is not a difficult transposition, and you get rid of all those accidentals in the music. It's a nice, clean-looking page. Then recently we played it out at Aspen, where they had one of the new fangled editions. So many, so many cues that I couldn't see the notes for the cues. But the thing that disconcerted me on that was that it had been retransposed back to horn and F, or I should say, to horn and F. And it was fine, except that all those years of playing it. I, I was worried, in fact, one time it caught up with me, that I, I assumed I was transposing to horn in D, and I would get a 20-30 measure rest, and come back, I see a C and A, and I'd automatically play the F sharp below it, which didn't help the Brahms symphony at all. <laughs> but it was simply that my mind clicked into sort of automatic pilot and horn in D, and, so, and that symphony I associate with horn in D, and a 20-bar rest was enough to uh, let my mind slip, and I came back in the wrong transposition. And I, I hate it, and I think uh, uh, that tradition should go on. Uh, of course, Brahms originally meant it to be horn and D, which is a much mellower-sounding horn than we have, but since when we play our, our valved horns in D horn, we find that a great many of the notes are involved with the first and second valve anyhow, which would automatically put it into a D horn. I don't know if that, that means anything, but uh, I suppose the, the new, younger people uh, would get the hold of a horn in F part and enjoy it because it uh, takes less mental work. But once you establish that mental work and uh, put it away in, your, in the back of your mind, it's very hard to switch to the, to the F horn when you're used to D horn in that particular movement. Any other comments? I agree very much with you. I think the thought behind the question is the concern for the preservation of, of tone color and uh, perhaps the alarm at um, the present tendency to go in for shorter and shorter instruments um, which have been mentioned in the past few days, F alto and even piccolo B flat. And I agree, um, we must 
I'd be very idealistic and play on as long a tube as we can manage with accuracy because this does produce a richer sound. This is not only fancy, it is an acoustical fact that there are more overtones to be heard. But we have to reconcile that with keeping a job. But um, it mustn't be um, just a form of escape, just as note-getting, um, rather than practice. Uh, the players in Vienna still play on the, nat on the <coughs> long F horn. Um, in fact, they play most of the repertoire you know, on the F horn. Um, I know that Roland Berger has an F alto, which he doesn't admit to, and which I've seen him play the Beethoven Seventh Symphony on. But um, he does as much as possible try and play on the F horn because he considers the particular sound they make there, the traditional Viennese sound, is worth preserving. Um, I think he's right, even if we don't like it, because it's a pity if we all end up making the same sort of noise. <coughs> May I say one word, please? I feel as a symphony player through such long experience. If I play a Brahms symphony, naturally I produce a little fuller, richer tone than I do by playing a, Mo a Mozart symphony. That is, that I have the feeling of the, uh, to associate with the composition. Mozart is light and, and light tone quality, while Brahms is a richer tone quality possible. Am I right? There was another question similar to the one just asked, so I will pass over it. It had to do with the uh, transposition, use of key signatures. Mr. Tuckwell, this is addressed to you and to the other gentlemen as well. And the writer is David Gooker from York, Pennsylvania. There is, particularly in the choral area, a school which contends that intervals of a major third, and hence the third sixth degrees of any scale, are being sung and played flat. The results of singing and playing these notes sharper seems to have had the result of adding a dynamic quality to the music presented. Do you have any comment or criticism? It's addressed to me. I'm trying to give the first answer. Uh, I think what is being referred to is um, trying to sing and or play um, in, with an untempered um, intonation. In other words, not to follow blindly um, the intonation we hear on a piano, which is basically out of tune, because there are more than 12 tones uh, that we should be able to play. If you tune a piano in, in tune for, for one key, you'll find uh, it's terribly out of tune for another key. That's why they've had to adjust the difference between, say, um, uh, to, uh, between, um, say, G, no, F sharp and G flat. They should be different notes, of course. Um, I think this is what the question means. Um, this is why playing with a piano is so difficult because we're, uh, unconsciously, we will play in tune for that key, but the piano doesn't adjust. So you have to adjust to the piano. adjust to the piano. If I can mention Mr. Sell again, when one played Oberon with him, uh, the three notes, of course being a part of a D major scale, he wanted the F sharp, the third note of the scale, and the third note of the call, to be quite sharp. He was not happy if it was 
what I would have called the entombed. He said, I don't want it to sound like you're playing D minor in a sharp manner. I want it to sound like D major in a definite manner. And of course, the way to do that is to get the third sharp, not flat, certainly. And uh, uh, I, I think an interesting sidelight to this is that we, on our valve instruments, of course, are necessarily playing a tempered instrument. That is, the, the manufacturer might think it's a tempered instrument. We play a G-sharp, we ordinarily use second and third valve. I'm talking G-sharp rhythm on the F horn. And we play A-flat also second and third. We may, we may untemper it with our lips. Thank goodness the horn is so flexible that we can do this. So that I would say the horn has the same ability to play an un untempered scale as the human voice has to sing one. What, what I do think is interesting is that we don't think of this point nowadays, but when we look back at a, at a hand chart of how the hand horn was played, you can take Gallet's method book and look at it. He was very careful to, to make the distinction between a G sharp and an, its enharmonic change into an A flat. All through the, uh, all through the entire three octave range which he writes for, he has a different, uh, a different hand position. Might be slight, but different for an F sharp or G flat and, and all through the entire scale. I wonder if the player was actually able to make these slight distinctions, but the chart certainly was aware of them. I, I can't call it a fingering chart because of course it was the chart for the hand, but uh, they were careful enough in those days of the hand horn to uh, distinguish between the enharmonic changes. It seems to me we should distinguish between them even though we might be using the same fingers for, for the enharmonic differences. We can, we can make that adjustment, I think, with the lips as well as with the hand slightly. Although we talk about changing the pitch with the hand, I, I feel this is the last resort. First, you tune the instrument to the best of your ability, then you play it in tune to the best of your embouchure's ability, and what remains to be tuned should then be used by the hand, but certainly the least amount possible. Kip, any comment you want to make? Well, gentlemen, here's a question for each of you. What in your orchestral experience has been the three most difficult passages for you to execute? And perhaps discuss why these were difficult for you, or any interesting stories connected with these passages. <laughs> May I begin with you? I mind the blanks. Well, who wants to The three most difficult passages in literature. They're all difficult. <laughs> <laughs> the next three. <laughs> That's very good. The next three. Well, I can name one I think that's difficult for only psychological reasons. Again, Oberon. That's, uh, it's obviously a, a beginner's stuff, but it's the, it's the situation. Oberon's never played anywhere but the beginning of the program, unless it might be an encore. The beginning of the program, the house lights dim, and there's a hush in the audience, the conductor comes out, there's a moment of applause, during which if you're smart, you're touching a, a D concert on the horn. Then, then there's this, this quiet, and suddenly you think, oh, I'm starting the entire program, and I'd better do it softly. It's slow enough so they can hear your tone, your intonation, 
your nervousness, everything shows an overrun. It shouldn't be difficult, and it's ridiculous that it is difficult, but it is difficult. That would be number one. Would it be a place to tell a little joke about yes. <coughs> my first position in Europe? The uh, first horn player of that orchestra was discharged because of carelessness and indulgence in liquor. <laughs> so he was discharged and played his last concert to get even with his conductor and manager they started the program with Oberon. And the conductor came in, house full of prominent people applauding. He gets on his podium, taps, and gives the cue to the horn player. He sat there, not a sound. <laughs> not a sound, and he puts his horn down again. He taps again, the horn player ready to play, not a sound. So the conductor was so embarrassed he steps down for the, on, from the podium, the moment he steps up,
didn't go like this or like that. You know, like many conductors, he would go, and I felt it. I go, the timing. You know, the timing. The timing was just magnificent. And the tempo had it just exactly right. And he didn't let conduct up an eighth. It was a four. Then after the second time, then, of course, he went eighth because the strings are with you. I just want you to know how uh, how the beat means an awful lot to any wind player. You must play with it. And I think that comes from being an opera and singer. You know how to play. Do any other comments? Well, I, I can mention one other number. It's not difficult, but it has a difficult situation surrounding it. This is the beginning of the Brahms B-flat concerto. The notes are, are beautifully placed. It's, a, it's the best range of the horn. The only thing is that uh, the piano comes up on the stage from the cold basement, perhaps. The, uh, the concerto is never the first number on the program. The orchestra's warmed up, and you know what happens to a warmed up orchestra. It goes up in pitch. So then the piano comes on the stage, not the least bit affected by the fact we're warmed up. Then the concertmaster goes over and hits an A of all the useless notes to be heard before the Brahms B-flat piano. <laughs> Then there's another cooling off period until the soloist comes out. And then you play these very simple, easy opening notes of the Brahms B-flat concerto, and you wait with bated breath, you have a bar rest, yeah. to see whether you were in tune or not. You won't know till the pianist comes in. <laughs> but this is, a, this is an interesting moment in your life. <laughs> we have a few moments remaining for questions directed uh, from the floor, so we'll be able to recognize a few <coughs> questions. Who has one? Yes, sir. How long have Mr. Potting and Mr. Horn known each other? Did they ever play together? How long have Mr. Potting and Mr. Horner known each other, and did they ever play together? Mr. Bird? Mr. Horner, how long have you known Mr. Potting, and have you played with Mr. Potting? In, in 1901. But we never played together. We interchanged position, I with his brother. Mr. Horner was with uh, Victor Herbert in Pittsburgh, and when we reorganized the Philadelphia Orchestra, we only had three horns. So when Mr. Horner came back to Philadelphia, his home, he wanted to bring his brother along, and naturally I interchanged my position. I went with Victor Herbert, but we never had the pleasure playing together. But I admire Mr. Horner as a person and as a great, great, great horn player. Some of you may not know that Mr. Horner's brother, Joe, played horn with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Uh, he played second horn. Another question. Yes, sir? Yes, ma'am? I don't know that any of them have had such an experience to base contrast on. We do some uh, larger bands are called wind ensembles and bands. Do you want to come in, Mr. Hines? Oh. Well, I would certainly think it's an entirely different, different approach because uh, in most, most bands, 
Now, the bands have certainly refined. Out at USC, we have William Schaefer as the director, and he makes these symphonic arrangements, turns them out one a week. Magnificent things in which he takes Berlioz's fantastic symphony and does a movement of it for the band and makes a very presentable thing of it. Well, in the case of that kind, I think you have to play at least as you would orchestrally, which again, of course, is on a little different approach from what you probably mean by a, a chamber music ensemble. But that has been answered uh, before about the difference between orchestral playing and woodwind quintet, for instance. But the <clears throat> just the ordinary, well, the traditional school band or uh, would call for a little bit more positive, more uh, less um, shaded style of playing than you have to have in in small ensemble. Uh, is that what you meant? I think so. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir.